Praise the Lord, everyone. Amen. It is good to be together in the house of the Lord. Those of us that are gathering fewer because of the restrictions, but uh, also for all those of you who are watching, I pray that you've been blessed so far by the worship, time of worship, and also by prayer and hearing all that's going on at New Life. Um, before I get into the sermon, I just want to say a, a couple of words before I uh, jump in. But um, And I want to say this, we're, we're all going through a difficult time. Every single person, obviously for some people, it's an even more difficult time. If you or your family has been hit in a serious way uh, physically by COVID, or if you've lost a job or those who own businesses and what they're going through. But for all of us, we are missing the connection with one another. Amen. Um, as I am thinking about this coming week and, and Thanksgiving, uh, even up until a little while ago, my plan was to have my kids and my grandkids at our house. And that has changed to Zooming with uh, my family on Thanksgiving. And that's a loss. That is sad. And we're all going through that on a whole bunch of different levels. And so we're in a time uh, with a lot of struggle. One thing I want to communicate, and I need to figure out a thousand different ways to do this at New Life Church as your pastor is that I want every person in this church not to know just these words I'm about to say, but the truth of them, that, that I am doing everything that I know how to do to say, I love you to the people of New Life Church. Amen? I don't love people at New Life who just might agree with me on something politically or theologically or otherwise. But we've gone through this series in First Corinthians for a reason to say that our love is, is, our love isn't just for a select few, but as believers in Christ, we're called to love one another. And with every fiber of my being, brothers and sisters and friends of New Life Church, I want to do that. I want to do that better than I ever have. I want to love and I want to see that love unleashed in the midst of his people. Amen. It's hard to do that in some ways when we're divided uh, physically um, and sometimes even divided by politics or other things. But when, when we're not able to have that proximity. So I'm going to reach out in as many ways as I know how to say, brothers and sisters, fellow believers on this trek with me, this crazy trek, I love you and I pray that God will make us, will, will actually take that word that we did for over two months on 1 Corinthians 13 and make it real and alive in the midst of his people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's love one another. Well, we're starting a, a new series today, which um, we weren't planning on, but this week changed it. Uh, on Monday night, as I laid in my bed and early Tuesday morning, could not sleep, just thinking about the loss and the struggle that we are collectively going through uh, in this time that I've already talked about a little bit, um, just 
lamenting and struggling through this. And we had another sermon series planned, but I really felt that the Holy Spirit was changing our direction to say, we need to deal with this right now. We need to deal with this idea of lament. Embracing lament, broken, beaten, and believing. Amen? Amen. Lament recognizes our brokenness. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't downplay it. Rem- lament recognizes that we feel beaten. We feel like we've been beaten by a stick until we're bruised and bloodied. But at the end of it all, lament is crying out to the living God and we are believing in him. Amen. So today's sermon in particular uh, is titled... Learning the language of lament. Broken, beaten, and believing, but learning the language of lament. Why is that so important? Look, we all lament. As a human being, you can't get away from it. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're white or you're black or you're Hispanic or you're Native American or you're Asian, whatever uh, place you find yourself in, we all hurt, we all bleed, and we all struggle in this life. We know what it's like to be perplexed by what's happening in our world and wonder, God, where are you in the midst of this? We know, if we're honest, what it is to question God's goodness or his sovereignty. But as we go into this series, I'm going to contend that for the most part, we're not very good at lament. For the most part, we've learned to avoid it by looking away quickly to pleasant distractions that make us feel better. Brothers and sisters, while it might be easy to believe that God is either good, I can believe God is good, or to believe that God is sovereign, I can believe God is sovereign, But it's actually very difficult if we think deeply at all about our lives and our situation to believe that God is both. He is good always, all the time, and all the time God is good, and he is sovereign. It's hard to hold that together. In a second, not right now, in a second, I'm going to show, have a picture shown in a second. And and I'm calling it out before it comes up because this is a rough picture to look at. And there may even be some parents at home with younger kids. You might want to check out the picture before you have your kids look at it. It's hard. It's difficult. But this is exhibit A in how difficult it is to believe that God is good and God is sovereign. This is a very famous picture taken in South Sudan in 1993 by a South African photographer named Kevin Carter during a time of massive drought in that land. You see in this picture this little girl who's wasted away. She's on her very last breaths of life. And you see behind her a vulture 
waiting for that last breath so that the vulture can begin the process of stripping away, eating away the flesh of this precious, precious little one. And you know that that moment is imminent as you look at this picture. That picture to me and I hope to you is gruesome beyond even words. It captures the unspeakable horror that's going on in this event and with the knowledge that this is being repeated over and over and over again, thousands upon thousands with the same fate. But here's the good question in the middle of this. Lord, where are you? This is one reason the inadequate answers to that question. It's a reason why many people have left the faith. Seeing, experiencing, dealing with tragedy in life, the tragedy of a childhood death, the tragedy of injustice, the tragedies of slavery in our past, the tragedies of seeing people killed and dying indiscriminately. It's the righteous or the wicked. It doesn't matter by a plague, atrocities of every kind in many of your lives and in this world. And we ask, Lord, where are you? But I think that the reason why some people just can't hang in with this idea of a good God and a sovereign God and hold that together is because we have not answered that question well. Let me give you two types of answers that just don't make it. The first type is a sure answer, but it's a simplistic answer. And you'll have to forgive me today. My introduction is almost as long as the text sermon that we get into, but we're introducing this whole topic. So the first type of answer is sure, and it's simplistic. It actually answers the question as if we can really understand it. It answers as if we have some insight into God and human affairs that in reality we don't have. It's akin to the answer ultimately given to Job by his so-called friends. One thing that's often said that should never be said is that somehow this is the will of God. Let, let, let me be clear when I say that. We should never speak of the results of human wickedness, of neglect and of evil, whether they're human or supernatural as the will of God, as if it is something that God is satisfied with. God is a God of life and restoration and healing. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. When we simply say, this is the will of God, what we're doing is ascribing to our good and holy and righteous God that which rightly belongs to the evil one. But it's a simple answer. It must be the will of God. He's sovereign, so it's the will of God. Not satisfied with that answer. The second type of answer is not... Simplistic and sure, but it is 
Well, it also is uh, simplistic, but it's convenient and it's clean. It takes God out of the equation. It acts as if God is not there. As if he doesn't know what's going on. This second type of answer excuses God altogether. And therefore, it does not do justice to the pain of knowing that God was right there. And for some reason, he didn't intervene. God, how? God, why? This answer seems to be better at first because it lets God off the hook. But it does that at a terrible Cost, somehow it gives us a God who's far away. He's not intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He's far away. These two types of answers, they're meant to give comfort, but ultimately they don't. George Floyd's murder was not the will of God. In any simplistic sense. But neither can we say that God looked away for eight minutes and 46 seconds and didn't see what was going on. No, we must admit that God was there, but for some reason that we cannot understand, he didn't intervene in that moment. God has not intervened. Over these last nine months or so, as a quarter of a million Americans have lost their lives to COVID-19 and almost a million and a half people around the world, even though the vaccines are on their way, we'll likely lose more than double the number of lives we've lost already before this is done. So based on that suffering that we see coming, I don't think we can say we're almost through it. That won't do for the multiplied millions of people who continue to suffer terrible loss in these coming months. We're in a mess and we need to lament. God hasn't intervened as our president tries to turn back the clock 55 years by throwing out the votes of people in Philadelphia and in Milwaukee and in Detroit, effectively upending the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was set in place to make sure that the votes of black and brown people were counted. We're in a mess and we need to lament On a personal note, God hasn't intervened in the church of a friend of mine as he and the senior pastor tried to establish a church. It grew to over 700 people in just a couple of years, just a few years. But as they've tried to establish a church that cared for disenfranchised People, they were repudiated by a movement that would rather see church growth and big numbers than deal with the ugly and ever-present realities of racism in their part of that city and minister to black and brown and immigrant communities that are right on the doorstep of where their church is. We're in a mess and we need to lament.
Simplistic answers. Convenient answers won't do. We need a better way. But there is a better way. There's a third way. And that that doesn't pretend to understand things and doesn't easily dismiss the depth of our grief. This is God's way forward for his people. It's the biblical way. It's the way of lament. I've said this before, but it it bears repeating. Uh, So often, as American Christians, we just want to get on to the triumph, but more psalms in it, more of the psalms are psalms of lament than any other type of psalm. There's a reason for that. We serve a God who knows how to lament and lead us into that lament. We can lament sometimes individually, but I would contend that as a people, as a church, we don't do that well corporately. Corporately, lament like real racial reconciliation or any kind of reconciliation demands that we actually look at the depth and at the ugliness of the situation for what it really is. It doesn't quickly pass over and sugarcoat the situation, but it dares to stare at the dead body. It allows itself to feel the excruciating pain of the moment, and it cries out to God in that pain. That cry of lament is an unfiltered cry. It's a painful cry. It's an ugly cry. It's often an accusing cry, but it is a cry unto God who we are in relationship with. The cry most often in our country over and over again is to just put the past behind, to live over it, not deal with the pain and the anguish caused by our sins. I know what that's like in my life especially when I'm the one who's caused the pain in someone else. Can't we just get along? Can't we just move along from that? Let's not deal with that. Let's pretend as if it's not all that bad. But brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands more of us than that, much, much more. The gospel demands that we don't just glance at past sins, but we look at sin square in the eye, square in the face, and fully own up to sin. That is where the healing is. That is where the grace is. That is where the blood gives me strength from day to day, and it will never, ever lose its power. We know that as believers. We know that when we come in the fullness of recognizing and and, and talking about our sin, that God meets us there. Not in some pretend place where it's not that bad. And he does that for us communally as well. The get over it and move on mentality is deep in our culture. And sadly, even in the church. So too often we water down Atrocities, sin, the lingering effects so that we can move on. That's not God's way. 
Carl Ellis. Some of you know him as a black theologian, a PCA guy from many years, uh, for many years. But he talks about this idea of the soul dynamic at work in the black church that kept it through slavery and Jim Crow and civil rights and continues on even into this time. The idea of the soul dynamic is that as a hurting people, as a disenfranchised people, as a people who are suffering the crushing weight of that is being put on them by society, they yet in the midst of that look at the only one who can save them and hold on to God in that. He calls that the soul dynamic. We will never lament well like we need to if we don't look at our pain head on. If we don't keep our eyes on the dead bodies, even when it hurts deeply. 2020 is a season for us where dead bodies are literally and figuratively everywhere. Let's pay attention. Sun Chan Ra, who wrote the book Prophetic Lament, says it this way. He says, lament is the language of the suffering. So here is my main idea today that I want us to consider. Healthy believers are fluent in the language of lament. Just get over it won't do. Healthy believers know why there's so much lament in the pages of scripture and don't turn real quick to the happy parts. But they know the language of lament. So having said all of that, I want us to stand together and to read a few verses from the prophet Habakkuk. We're going to look today at verses 1 through 12, but we're just going to read together Verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. So let's read God's word together. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call out for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Let us pray. Father God, I pray that in the rest of our time here today and in the coming weeks, that you will help us collectively to be a people that knows the language of lament. And that we're able not to come to you with simplistic answers and feel better for a minute. But God, we're able to come to you with the depth of our grief, of our loss, of our hurt, of our pain, of our frustration the deepest parts of our soul and come to you as the only one 
who has any answer, even if we don't understand it. So God, use this time for your glory and for the good of your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me just set the stage here for the book of Habakkuk. This is a book that's written by a prophet probably, well, somewhere after 609 B.C. Um, in 609, the last great and good king of Judah died. His name was Josiah. Some of you might remember Josiah as the boy king. He was eight years old when he became king. And Josiah led the nation into reforms. He turned them back to God. At one point it says that they found the word of God in the temple. It had not been read for years. And Josiah reads it and reads it before the people. And they weep. And he begins to reform the nation and turn them back to God. And God blesses those efforts. And there's prosperity among God's people, even though outside forces are difficult. But Josiah dies in the year 609 in a battle against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And so he dies at that time. And ultimately, the Pharaoh puts one of his sons on the throne, Jehoiakim. And the nation is still doing well, financially, prospering in many ways, but Jehoiakim turns them away from the Lord. Bible says that he walks in the ways of his great-great-grandfather Manasseh, who was the, one of the wickedest kings of all of the kings listed in Scripture. He was an idolater, and, and he did many things, wickedness before the Lord. And Jehoiakim turns away from the God of his father, goes back a couple of generations to his great-grandfather, and turns away from God. Scripture says that he kills the prophet Uriah, who is speaking truth to power. There's no place for that in this kingdom because he set up a system of idol worship. He set up an economic system that benefits the rich, the wealthy, those in power, and it oppresses the poor and the hurting. He set this up in his kingdom, and anyone that speaks against that is in trouble because Jehoiakim has the power to destroy. And it is in the midst of this that Habakkuk, screams out, cries out to the Lord. He has this vision that he receives. And the first words that are in this scripture in verse 2, how long, Lord? How long do I cry out? And there's no answer. Here's my first point today. Biblical lament cries out for justice. Look at verses 3 and 4 in particular. I'll just jump around them a little bit, but he starts in verse 3. Why do you make me look at injustice? 
This is among God's people. This isn't from the people out there. This is in a time of prosperity. We're doing well. But he says, why do you make me look at injustice? Look at verse 4. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. He goes on to say the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Biblical lament cries out for the justice of God. Even when my pockets are all right, my situation is good. Habakkuk probably wasn't a poor man who was on that oppressed in, among those who were severely oppressed. But he sees it in the country and he cries out, how long can we look at this injustice? Lament cries out for justice. Sometimes when we look at the Bible and do Bible study, we can just, uh, we're doing a word study or a study on justice. We can just look at, well, where is justice? But justice is all over these verses, even not just in the word. Look at the words he uses in verse 3. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Then he says, destruction and violence are before me. There is strife. Conflict abounds. All of these things are the result of this injustice, violence and destruction and wrongdoing and strife and conflict are everywhere. And the prophet says, my eyes can't look on this anymore. God, why? Why? Why does it have to be this way? He says, you can move on to the next slide here. He, he says that, l- l- well, let me say this, lament struggles with the discrepancy of what God's word says and your lived reality in the world. Lament struggles with the distance between the promises of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the healing of God, the salvation of God, and the lived reality of injustice and oppression in the world. Lament struggles with that. Look at what he says. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. That word paralyzed means to be bent or or to be numb, to be helpless, to be ineffective. In other words, to be impotent. He says, the law, that word there in Hebrew is Torah. A Jewish person had the greatest uh, uh, esteem for Torah, the law of God, the Torah of Moses. And Torah referred to all of the scripture as well as those first five books of Moses. But their hope was in Torah. Their hope was in the word of the Lord. God's word is good. God's promises are good. But he says, Torah's not working. The word of God is broken. It's impotent. It doesn't work. It's paralyzed. That same word for paralyzed is used in Psalm 38 where the psalmist says, I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I got no strength. I got no power. But that's the word that the prophet uses for the law of God. In Habakkuk, the the Torah, the word of God is feeble. And, And so the prophet is 
looking at his lived reality in Judah and he's looking at the word of God and he sees in Psalm 19, 7 that it says the law of the Lord, the Torah Adonai is perfect. It's perfect. It is flawless. That word means complete. It is sound. It is without defect. It will accomplish what I send it to accomplish, Isaiah says. It will not go out void. And the prophet is looking at the reality of what seems to be the voidness of the word of God. It's not working out like the word says at all. And so he cries out to God in the midst of this. Listen, brothers and sisters, one thing I'm grateful for is that everyone I've talked to at New Life and that I know of is also lamenting one way or another about the divisiveness in our world, in our country, sometimes even in our church and nation at this time. But we're lamenting that divisiveness. It's good that we lament that. It's good that we're not comfortable with that. It's good that it bothers us deeply. It's good that it causes us pain. But the answer is not, well, can't we all just get along? (laughs) That's not the answer. We must find the answer the way the prophet is finding this answer by seeking God, crying out for justice and lamenting what is. Not looking past it for a quick fix. So let me look at my second point from the scripture here. The second point is this. And this is like God is the ultimate boss. God is the boss because as the prophet pours out his heart in lament before the Lord, God often answers by calling you to deeper lament. When you thought... Can't get any worse than this. Let me lament. Often God will focus your eyes in such a way that you'll see pain on an even different level. Let me read a few of these verses, starting at verse 5. This is God's answer to the prophet. He says, look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth and seize dwellings, not their own. I'm going to read a few more verses that I'm not putting on the board. At verse 7 it says, They are feared and dreaded people. They're a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. Verse 9 says, They they all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind. And gather prisoners like sand. Go on to the next slide. Verse 10. says they mock kings. And scoff at rulers. They laugh. At all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps. They capture them. Verse 11 says. Then they sweep past like the wind. And go on. Guilty people. Whose strength. Is their God. 
How was the Lord answering the prophet? The prophet says, it's so bad here, Lord. Injustice is everywhere. I can't look at it anymore, Lord. Where are you? You promised you would intervene. And God answers him. And God is saying, I'm going to intervene. <laughs> I'm not just turning my head away and letting it go. But I don't know if he called him Habby. I'm going to call him Habby for a second. But Habby, I got to tell you, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. You won't even believe how bad this is about to get. It's not just this injustice you see in Judah, but the one who is coming as the hand of the Lord to write it is a wicked people. It is the Babylonians. And as you look through the scripture, you see constantly from Genesis to the end of Revelation, this battle between Babylon and the people of God. And he's saying, Babylon is about to come and strike you and hurt you. And you've never seen anything like this. But what he is saying, even in saying that, is, brother, I've heard you, I've seen the cries of my people, and I'm going to do what I had promised all along. In Deuteronomy, he had let the people of God know, if you don't follow my ways, I will kick you out of this land. I will discipline you. I will bring you low. I will cause you to be in that difficult place. I will do it because you're my people and I love you and I just can't let you live like that. So God is answering him and saying, I have heard the cries. I've heard your cries all along, but what I'm going to do is going to hurt. Deuteronomy 29 verse 23, it says, the whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. He's talking about what will happen when I push you out of the land because of your disobedience. He says, it will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, uh, which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this fierce, burning anger? The beginning of that scripture, he says, the whole land is going to be a waste. Salt and sulfur. Nothing planted. Nothing can sprout. No vegetation on it. Sun Chan Ra, who wrote Prophetic Lament, I talked about him a little while ago, said this. The Babylonians were ruthless conquerors who followed a scorched earth policy, burning and salting the fields so that subsequent crops would be compromised. Then proceeding to fill the whale, the wells, they destroyed the nation and the land. This is the coming reality of what God had prophesied many years ago. That if you continue 
in your ways of sin and don't repent and allow this injustice to fill your land. I'm going to kick you out and the land will become desolate. It will become scorched. Nothing can grow there anymore. And the Babylonians were just the right ones to do that. So God leaves no escape. And therefore, the only answer is to look to him. This is actually where God wants us to be. It's where we need to be. You will see God most clearly only from a place of desperation. You'll see God most clearly only from a place of desperation. I'm going to read a quote from Howard Thurman, who was the mentor to many of those in the civil rights, the time of civil rights, to Dr. King and many others. Many of the civil rights leaders in the 50s and 60s kept a copy of Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, with them all the time so they could refer back to it. And that is part of what fueled that powerful movement. It wasn't fueled by secular hatred or we got to get ours. It was fueled by this idea of the justice and the love of God. God, and that is what fueled that movement. He was a main influence behind the scenes in that movement. But Thurman writes this. I can count on my fingers of one hand the number of times that I've heard a sermon on the meaning of religion, of Christianity, to the person who stands with their back against the wall. It is urgent that my meaning be crystal clear. The masses of people live with their backs consistently against the wall. They are the poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. The search for an answer to this question is perhaps the most important religious quest of modern life. Those words were true in 1949, and they're true on the verge of 2021. Let me say this as well. As God's people, we're in the best position. Go to the next slide. As God's people, we're in the best position to have a real encounter with the living God only when we see ourselves in the place of the disinherited. That also brings us into solidarity with his church around the world. See, it's clear that God is calling his people To give up the model of human pride, human power, and human success for the position of humility, of weakness, and of service. And if you don't believe that, then I would encourage you to read the Gospels and read the life of Jesus Christ. It's only in that humble position, the position that begins with extended lament that we will actually experience God's abiding presence, God's divine power and his unspeakable joy. But too often we look for a shortcut. I need to feel better quicker and find a way out of the depth of pain that this world is offering to me. That's not just in our addictions or in easy-to-see sin patterns, but in the subtle ways that we can avoid the ugly realities 
of just how painful the world is. We all tend that way. But in 2020, it's more difficult than ever for most of us to get away from it. But we must not give up. We must not give in to a demonic demand for immediate relief. Here's what I want you to get. This last point. True joy. God's joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. And the half has never yet been told. True joy is born out of a deep grief given to God through tears. And returned back to you with the clarity of his promised deliverance deeply etched in the fabric of your soul. We want real joy, lasting joy, joy unspeakable. We get that as we offer our tears and our lament and our pain and the pain of brothers and sisters all around us, we offer that to God and we see in that time, many times extended time, and we'll, we're not done with this book, we're just getting started, but we'll see how God points us to what he's about to do, what he will do. Though you might not see it, you know it because he's done it. And brothers and sisters, we can say this, where do you see the will of God in the life of Jesus Christ? That's where you see the will of God finally and completely revealed, not only in his battered life, not only in his beaten life, but you see it finally and fully in his resurrection life. Because at the end of all things, the will of God is the resurrection of the eternal son from the grave who pays for the sins of his people. That is what we see in the end. We're called like the prophet Habakkuk to lament the fallenness of a broken world. We're called like the Lord Jesus who cries out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I invite you not to avoid the pain, but to cry out to God with it. I invite you this week to write in a journal if you have one. If you don't, to write anyway, a personal psalm of pain and brokenness to God. And don't afraid, don't be afraid to get ugly with it. God can handle it. He can handle it. As I close, the language of lament is honest. The language of lament is real. And the language of lament is raw. But the language of lament is also fully engaged with God as it seeks to make sense of contradictions in the midst of pain. The promises of this word we live and we hold on to and we believe, but for the most part, in, in many places and many times, we just don't see it. And what we see is the opposite. And we cry out with the prophet, how long, O oh Lord? 
But most importantly, I want you to get this today. Lament doesn't look for shallow comforts to avoid pain. But it presses into pain and it presses into God. This is the invitation that Habakkuk took. This is the invitation that Jesus took. And this is the invitation that God is calling you and I to as well. I pray that this week and over this next month, even as we prepare to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, we also as a people learn to lament. Learn to press in and not just push past the pain. Let me pray. Father God, if we'll be honest, there's way more things that we don't understand than things that we do. And Lord, I believe that many people have been pushed away from Christianity, from religion, not because of Jesus Christ at all. They love Jesus. But because of the simplistic and convenient answers that Christians have for everything. When we're not even be honest about our own pain or hurt or the questions of that little girl in the Sudan and the millions of other questions we could ask looking at the world today and for many of us even looking at our own lives, our own families, tragedies everywhere, injustice all around. But God is good and God is sovereign. How is that, Lord? Lord, teach us to know you in a way that's beyond our brain and lodges in our soul and wells up in the kind of believing that it empowers us to be witnesses for you even in the midst of tragedy, trial, and difficulty. God, have your way and glorify your name, I pray, in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.